personal log of Paler Toff. Fajo seems very preoccupied with Earth artifacts in his collection. I wonder why, since he's not human at all. He loves humans so much that he wanted to own a fake one. A bad fake one at that. He was so preoccupied that he didn't even comment on my newly crafted brass nose face bracelet. Welcome to Reengage, <laughs> where we watch every episode of the sci-fi series Star Trek The Next Generation and re-engage with the show from the perspective of adult storytellers instead of the little children's we were when it first aired. Today we're talking about the 22nd episode of season three, The Most Toys. I'm so excited to welcome my fellow cultural bridge officers to discuss the morality of an android murdering a murderer. We even have a very special guest to talk through this emotional episode, but we'll introduce her in just a moment. First, let me say hi to you, Kate Yeager. How are you doing, Kate? Oh my gosh, I'm doing so good. It's been so long since we've seen each other and talked to each other that I'm feeling uh, most happy. It is very most happy. It's been a, it's been about a month, uh, but you know things happen, schedules occur, uh, especially those from Eric Curry. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing well. I am in one place for the next couple of weeks, uh, at least because Krista has COVID. Oh. Uh, you have had a horrible last few weeks, uh, but we are excited that we get to at least brighten it up a little bit for this hour while we discuss this episode. Oh, hell yeah. Jimmy G, how are you doing? I am doing great. I am finally over the Rona. You know that I love a good museum caper. So I'm excited for this one. <laughs> uh, and I am very pleased to welcome Susan Arendt to this podcast. Hi, Susan. How are you? Hello. It has been a hot minute since we got to chat about something on a podcast, my friend. It is true. I was trying to uh, remember. I think it's been 10 years. maybe Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Years. Yeah, it's been some time, but I'm excited because uh, we have always talked about sci-fi together and fantasy uh, and Star Trek The Next Generation is something that's been a big part of all of our lives. But I wanted to ask you, like, what was your first introduction to this franchise? How did you get into watching Trek? My dad was into Trek. And so when I was very, 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 very small, he would (laughs) Saturday afternoon, you know, he would come in from mowing the lawn or whatever. and, And it was, you know, time to have a glass of iced tea and watch Star Trek and so it would be hey come come watch this show with me and he would explain who was who and what was what and whenever specific episodes were on that was kind of a family event all the all our favorite ones and yeah Trek was a really really big dad kid thing in our house that's awesome yeah I think all of us have that kind of generational story about about why it's important um and i love that you had that connection with your dad it was my family's as well but this uh series next generation was the first one was like our show right there was the old uh, original series and it felt like oh there's a kid that he's just like us on this bridge it's great <laughs> it's also it felt it was we got to be in on it from the beginning Right, because like Star Trek was this thing that had existed since before we were born, and it and it belonged to other people. And the next generation came out, and it was we got to be there from day one, and all this stuff was new, and we were in on it from the get go, and that was very very exciting. So we felt this ownership of it. I feel like in a way that we couldn't have with uh, the original series. Absolutely, and it just it built off all of the medial, uh, stuff that the original series and the original series movies did to, I don't know, have that kind of, not necessarily utopian feeling, but that idea of like, hey, things are getting better. And as we're looking back at all of these episodes, I've started to realize like this series is in a very important part in, in history when there was that positive feeling. There were things happening. So for example, we're talking about The Most Toys, which in Stardate, 4, 3, 8, 7, 2.2, and that aired... 
May 7th, 1990. Uh, and around that time, on May 4th, 1990, the singing revolution was ongoing in the Baltic states. Latvia, SSR, declared independence from the Soviet Union on May 4th. They were like, mm -mm, we're not going to do it anymore. Then on May 6th, totally different, changing up the thing. Tom Cruise was ticketed for careless operation of a vehicle in South Carolina. Anyone want to guess what film he was filming at that time? Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder. There you go. Very easy. <laughs> Seemed to be on brand for him to be driving recklessly during that time. I, for some reason, remember that story. Well, he is a method actor. Oh <laughs> and then the day after this aired, the singing revolution continued. Estonia uh, restored the formal name of its country to the Republic of Estonia, as well as all of the national emblems that were suppressed during the USSR rule. So lots of things happening. I remember, you know, we, we talked about Estonia and Latvia, but then also uh, Lithuania being a big part of this little cracks in the USSR breaking apart. And then, of course, I remember Lithuania being sponsored, the basketball team in the Olympics being sponsored by the Grateful Dead, I believe. Well, Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia, right? And then they had like tie-dye uniforms. Do you remember that? Absolutely. I do not, but that's kind of cool. Yeah, it was like the one they were like, hey, we have a basketball team. We're going to compete on a on a national level, but we don't we can't pay for this. So Jerry Garcia stepped in, you know, like he does. What was going on in pop culture at this time, Kate? On the top of the music charts, we just can't get rid of Nothing Compares to You. It's a fantastic oh, song. No reason why it shouldn't stay at number one. But on the modern charts, the modern pop rock charts, Enjoy the Silence by Depeche Mode had the yes. number one spot. Uh, all I ever yes. wanted, all I ever needed is here in my arms. Words are very unnecessary. They can only do harm. Oh, my childhood wrapped yeah. up. God, they were in great. a in a blank sh a black shroud and put uh you know around my neck. That is my childhood. <laughs> I sing that to my kids when I'm like, guys, you gotta sh bring it down. Let's enjoy the silence. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty Woman remained number one on the movie charts, but that weekend, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie was released. I watched it yesterday. Did Whoa. you really? I did, yeah. How's it hold up? God bless Blondie. It's super fun, still. I, there, the, that one in the middle that is Steve Buscemi, uh, Julianne Moore, and uh, Christian Slater is super interesting. Ah, oh, have to watch it again. It has been a hot minute. On television, that weekend, comedian Andrew Dice Clay guest-hosted Saturday Night Live, Nora Ooh. Dunn. Hell yeah, Nora Dunn. Boycotted the show in protest, as did the singer of that episode, was supposed to be Sinead O'Connor, who pulled out only to have her own controversy a few months later. NBC censors insisted that the episode be aired with a delay to compensate for anything Clay might say on air. Wow. Oh, Andrew Dice Clay. I, I hated him <laughs> so much as a child. Like, I think part of it was just my mom, you know, had such negative views of him. Uh, but I just, I remember that Saturday Night Live controversy and Nora Dunn being a total badass. And that's what was happening in pop culture. Nice. The only other thing I noticed, uh, this is kind of news and pop culture -y. Mick Jagger's wife during this week, I believe, stated that 
him and David Bowie had slept together. I remember that being like a, oh, oh yeah, that's not something you think about too often. We've all seen the video for Dancing in the Streets. Like, well, yes. I, I believe they they both admitted it, you know, at various times through their career. They're both like, yeah, wouldn't you? And, right, right. <laughs> like, it's Mick Jagger and David Bowie. You have the opportunity to sleep with David Bowie. Do you do it? Yeah, yeah. obviously. Good. Yeah. You have the opportunity to sleep with Mick Jagger. Do you do it? Yeah, obviously. Like, who is not having that conversation? I would sleep with Bowie, but not with Mick Jagger. I don't think he'd be a good kisser. Not enough of a cuddler for Jim. Yeah, I I don't think he'd be... I have a feeling he wouldn't be a good kisser because of those lips. It's like he would be taking in my face. (laughs) (laughs) He could be consuming the entire thing. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. (laughs) I like a good kiss. Going on to this episode of The Most Toys... Jimmy, what was happening behind the scenes here? A couple of things. We will end on a sad note. First, we have the shuttle pod, the Pike. This is the first time that a fictional character was used to name a shuttle pod. We've had many uh, real scientists who have had their names on the Enterprise's shuttle pods. We see the return of the Verinti Disruptor, if you remember. This is not only the same gun, but probably the exact same prop (laughs) that Sovac was carrying in the Captain's Holiday. Oh, wow. The Dolly painting that Fajo sort of offhandedly references when he walks by, that actual painting in real life is only 9 by 13 inches. And, of course, it's way bigger <laughs> on the episode. Oh, that's funny. Uh, I had but, no idea it was that small. Yeah, and, but if you remember, like, in my undergrad, every once in a while, this poster guy would show up, and he would take over a whole room, and he have posters everywhere and of course what one is uh, the persistence of memory was one of the most popular ones. and you could get like a wall-sized version <laughs> of, of memory. yeah i was the douche that had taxi driver on his like, no, <laughs> run from that guy uh and then we do at, uh, end on uh unfortunately a very sad note during the filming of this episode there was two days of shooting and then they went into the weekend uh and the original actor who was cast to play fajo was David Rappaport, who you might remember from The Wizard, the TV series, and I had a fabulous two episodes on L.A. Law uh, and a pretty great career. But um, over that weekend, he attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. He was quickly replaced by Rubinick. Uh, The story ends in tragedy because shortly after he was released from the hospital, he successfully committed suicide on May 2nd, just five days before this episode was aired. If you're struggling, you have trouble in the United States, you can dial 988 to get help 24 hours a day. Um, I don't know what that number would be internationally, but please ask for help. Uh, and that's all from the Nemesic Files. Thanks, Jimmy. I did not realize that that Saul Rubinek was a quick casting here because he works so well in this role. Yeah. Uh, but Eric, can you talk about the the other actors and, of course, Mr. Rubinek? Yes, I I would love to focus on Saul Rubinek, but I'm not able to because of the glory people who were also in it as our friend Toph. Uh, was, of course, Nehemiah Persoff, who had one of the most amazing careers of someone you might not know by name. <laughs> I can't do uh, him justice. I mean, the, probably the biggest role you might know him from is he was Little Bonaparte in Some Like It Hot. Like, that's how early the dude started. He was Papa Mouskowitz yes. in An American Tale. Yes. He was he was the last rabbi you see in Angels Amer- in America, and that was his last credit. But one of his very first credits is he drove the cab during the I Could Have Been a Contender 
contender speech and scene in On the Waterfront. Wow. My God. He interned at Stella Adler Studio in New York as a young man and was cast by Charles Lawton in Lawton's Galileo on Broadway, which is one of the more famous productions in Broadway history. Then his first movie was the same year, which was The Naked City. This guy showed up everywhere that he reprised uh, that role in the series. He was Yentl's father. This dude won the <laughs> L.A. Critics wow. Circle Award for the Dybbuk at Mark Taper Forum. He's a giant. I'd say... Wait, wait, wait. He's Papa from Papa Can You Hear Me? Yes. <gasps> He's got a whole song about That's him. That's amazing. Oh, all right. All right. All right. <laughs> This is a stellar, ridiculous career, and that honestly sums it up better than I could. (laughs) I encourage you to go through his IMDb or his um, Wikipedia. The list of stuff that he did is long and incredible. Um, But we also have to talk about Varya, who meets a bad end. Uh, Jane Daly has been going strong in The Rookie since 2019, still mm. working hard. Everything on her entire uh, resume is big-time stuff. How to Get Away with Murder, This Is Us, Grey's Anatomy, Cold Case, The Mentalist. She is mom in Mission Impossible 3 because she was in Felicity and other things with J.J. Abrams, and they must have gotten along well. She's fantastic. Um, Dear John, L.A. Law, Family Ties, Who's the Boss, Highway to Heaven, Moonlighting, Give Me a break, St. Elsewhere, North Dallas 40, and her first film, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things. <laughs> oh my God, I want her career so badly. And that brings us to our favorite German Canadian stage and film star as director, actor, playwright. This is, of course, Mr. Saul Rubinick. Jimmy, before I get started, what's your favorite Saul Rubinick performance? <laughs> It's tied with this episode of TNG and his work on Hunters, the Amazon original show. Oh, shit, yeah. Great on Hunters. Anybody else got one to shout out before we dive in? I loved him on Warehouse 13. I was yes. just a, oh, I was a so fan good. of that in general. Heck yes. But yeah. So good. Heck yes. Great choice. Off the top of my head, I wrote down a few before I went looking. And of course, Unforgiven comes up right away with me. Oh, it's the first time I was, yes. I was struck by him. And I was in acting school at the time just blown away by this full character that is cowardly and funny and probing and smart and ambitious and just the full array of human emotions and experience not a movie star not young just strikingly good in that movie he was the writer right yeah, he was like I think one, that's a good yeah, one, the, the, I might the have one to put adapting that on it. Now too. I really think that's the one that launched him into a higher kind that's of really strata in, in Hollywood. But he didn't need to be launched into a particularly high strata on stage or independent film at this point. I didn't know this. He was a longtime Stratford guy in Ontario, which is one of the best theaters that I ever had the chance to visit when I was going to school in Detroit. And he's the founder of the Canadian Stage Company, along with a few other actors and directors. His NYC stage bona fide an L.A. big presence on stage are inarguable. He was born in an Allied displaced uh, persons camp in 1948 where his father ran a Yiddish theater company. His parents were Polish Jews that were hidden by uh, local farmers during the last couple years of the war, and he's written a book about their experience called So Many Miracles. He won a drama log for his uh, touchstone in Desmacanifs, As You Like It. And we had a running joke when I got to play Rosalind a few years ago. See how I dropped that in? I dropped that in whenever I can. Um, <laughs> where Touchstone is the hardest character that Shakespeare wrote. It's like Shakespeare owed the actor who played Mercutio money 
<laughs> and the actor who played Touchstone owed Shakespeare something because my God, that's a terrifyingly difficult role because it's a clown who's not funny. And to win an award playing that on stage in a big theater town has to really speak to your to your chops. He's a genre star, not the least for this, but for his great work on Warehouse 13, as Kate said. He played another film director on Stargate SG-1. That's what he does often, is he plays asshole film directors. As he, oh, yeah, he's typecast. As he did in uh, Psych, in a terrific episode where they're doing the telenovela. And in uh, one of my favorite performances of his, and one of the first things I thought of, Sweet Liberty, written and directed by Alan Alda in the mid-80s as kind of a love letter to bad Hollywood and good people. <laughs> it's really terrific. Not only the two of them, but Bob Hoskins gives an incredible performance, and the entire supporting cast is stellar up and down the up and down the thing but not a great movie but one of my great favorites he's memorable in the rememberable young doctors in love which was made for eight-year-old boys when i was one against all odds wall street i love trouble getting even with dad we get into the 90s and we all go wow family man rush hour two i keep seeing him when i do re-watches like hill street blues ray bradbury theater the equalizer la law the practice law and order nypd blue curb lost boston legal tons of leverage, Grey's Anatomy, Hunters, as Jimmy said, and he's wonderful as the camp director on Mrs. Maisel. Yes. One of my favorite actors yes. of all time. He's incredible on Schitt's Creek as the agent and producer putting together Moira's reboot. Uh, I think of his direction, both on stage and film, of Tom and Jerry, which is a wonderful play. Uh, the movie version is called Jerry and Tom and is Sam... Rockwell and Joe Montaigne, and uh, I really, really recommend it. I think of his recurring role on Frasier, first lovely, just a, a family friend who is engaged to Daphne, and then growing into vengeance personified. I think his work kind of through all out is he makes fun, full characters all along the ideological spectrum, but usually mercenary and on the evil side of good. It's not usually starting out malevolent, but he gets there and he does all this with creativity and charm, but he doesn't make these bad guys aspirational. And that's a really fine line to walk. Like nobody watches this and goes, oh, I want to be that guy. It's never that, but you do laugh with him and you do laugh at him. And I just find it so impressive. And he's adept at that particular thing. And you see in this episode as well. Sorry, I took so long there. But he legit is one of my all time favorite character actors. He's such a good and a good performance here, uh, indicative of all of that. Because you're right, you're almost like he's like a Shakespearean character that you want to boo hiss at the whole time, but you're enjoying the fact that you're mm -hmm. booing and hissing at him. Uh, which is, you're right, it's difficult to pull off. It's almost like a yeah. a wrestling uh, bad guy uh, here in this situation. Yeah. My favorite aspect of the performance here is. I think he nails the idea that someone who has that much wealth and power doesn't need to think of good stories or lie well. He just needs to pretend that these words make sense in this order and then look at you like this and dare you to call him on it. Mm -hmm. And he does that throughout, and I think it's an amazing choice. All right, well, let's get into the episode itself. Um, a couple of newcomers to the creative staff. Sherry Goodhart's was the writer. This was her first script for TNG, but she goes on to write a few uh, in subsequent seasons. And then Timothy Bond is the director for 3872.2, the star date. And we start off with the Enterprise trying to get some hytridium because there's been a tricyanate poisoning at a colony Beta Agri 2. I was going to say three, but it's not. It is two. Don't say three. Agri. 
Don't say three, that's different. <laughs> they hate that. Seti Alpha 5. So yeah, it's all set up. We This this uh, substance is hydridium. It's very uh, dangerous. So Data has to shuttle it back and forth. He is very precise in how he uh, communicates during this shuttling. But it's a little, uh, I, I don't want to say slow, but this opening doesn't quite get to the action right away until the end. We get the introduction of Varia. She asks for Data to press a uh, thing, signing that the... Transfer is complete, and then Data gets frozen, and she starts rattling off. <laughs> what he's made of his ingredients. <laughs> yes, his components. <laughs> uh, you expect to see three people come in from the sides and untwist his feet right. and run off. <laughs> I have to say that takes a lot of core strength from uh, from our Data. Like that was that was well done. That that for for quite some time. He's frozen with that thumb. Yeah. Uh, put up there yeah for sure uh, but then we cut away and it goes to the bridge of the enterprise and the shuttle leaves this ship named the jovis that is run by the trader kivas fajo we don't know we haven't met him yet but we understand that he was the only guy that had this uh, hydridium and then the ship blows up i like the lighting effect on this uh, everybody on the enterprise is very shocked with this orange light uh, kind of bathing them and then it is wharf sentimental emotional wharf who says data I know. I love it. I know. The only real emotion I think uh, Data's lost for a while, too. Wesley Crusher stares straight ahead and is like, oh, you know, he's, he's got it. <laughs> what did you guys think about this uh, this cold opening? Oh, I loved it. This is one of the few episodes that I remember, mainly because of uh, Rubinick. I remember his performance uh, through all these years. So I knew what was coming. Uh, so it was just a, and I had forgot about that part of it. Really, I just remembered this crazy guy who had a bunch of toys. <laughs> but it was fun because uh, you're just, just being reminding of the setup. And it's really clever how it ties in later. Like this is this is a very brilliant manipulator and schemer. Uh, and we get to see that without them calling to it until much later in the episode, which is fun as well. Well, on the one hand, like it's, it's, it's beautifully paced right because it's it it lulls you into this like i don't know what's going on dude is okay you're bringing the stuff back to the ship okay whatever the explosion comes absolutely out of nowhere and surprises you and that's what whoa what 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 and i like that balance of we're going through this route this very mm -hmm. routine who's been doing it three times you put the stuff on the thing and then you bring it and then now all of a sudden bang and what i mean you know nothing happened to data because this comes from a time of television where you didn't kill off main characters <laughs> like they wouldn't just kill like okay but at the same time you you don't know what did happen the enterprise very clearly thinks he's dead so now there's a mystery afoot but you don't know quite what is happening it's a really great what way to put you as a viewer on your back foot so you you don't know what the thing of the episode is going to be. Yeah, I love I love your point there about it being like very routine and then you know and mundane and then uh, everything changes from there. Credits rolling and then here is where we get the introduction to Kivas Fajo played by Saul Rubinek and I love we now know of course after having watched this episode that he's lying through his teeth this entire scene but he plays it so well. It's not the Ferengi kind of like, we're lying to you. Like, you, just, you believe him. But there is like a like a seed of doubt somehow in how it's directed here. When we first meet him, he's sort of very like, hey guys, what happened? 
so weird on your end. Like, I just love that he immediately throws it to them. It's all gaslighting. It's all, you know, this very well, you know, thought out uh, manipulation. And it's so skin crawly. But you're right. It's not the like, let me twist my evil mustache. Right? Like, it's you buy it enough that that it unsettles you. But it it there's there's red flags a, a plenty we'll say it feels like someone who knows they're the villain and knows that it's pretty easy to figure out they're the villain, but also knows that nobody will look at him and go you're the villain right mm. I I feel like sometimes we add layers of shit to a performance because we like the actor. I don't think I'm doing that there. I think that he has so many choices to pluck from and he goes, I'll take them all and somehow <laughs> makes it work. I'm about to prove you right. <laughs> well, the uh, the character as originally designed had extensive face prosthetics and makeup and was supposed to look wholly alien. Mm. But of course, the original actor was not, uh, could not do the performance. Saul Rubinick gets tagged in they did not have time because they're already behind schedule. Didn't have time to make, to remake the face makeup. No. So the costume, all the makeup he has is all like, what do we got? Okay. Um, so all he has to create this character of Fajo and communicate what's on the paper and what was intended to be sold via an entire look, all he has is voice, demeanor, body language, you know, ultimately what an actor has at their core. So yeah, that's all him bringing it to the table, just just with his natural charisma and understanding. I'm in. I love that they went with the tattoo side thing that they had used for a couple aliens already, and the the chin flavor saver thing. The nose, it's the yeah. nose. <laughs> right under the flavor nose. <laughs> That's the only it's, thing that uh, apparently worked from the... Yeah. The that was a, he has a lovely yeah, the moment. The angle that, of your nose is the same. Right. Yeah, the lovely moment where he dismisses. He's like, oh, you want the reports? And he snaps his fingers oh. and waves it off, which gives you an idea. Okay, this guy isn't likable, but is he unbelievable? Which is uh, just fun that he chose to play in the ring, the pinky rings. The pinky rings are huge. So over the top. But that kind of thing can help an actor because now it demands that you use your hands in a certain way. Honestly, when I was young and, and I didn't like recognize the broad swath of humanity out there, I, I would have said this was maybe over the top. But like... Oh. Have you met people? Yeah. <laughs> like, people are fucking nuts. Yeah. And they 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 express that with all of their self. And now I, I want big shit. And when he does it, it's it's delightful. Especially capitalist rich people like this asshole. Um, yeah, I'm fine with that. I love the snapping. We'll get to this more snapping later. But he definitely uses snapping as a choice for this character. And it works so weirdly well because... It's both dismissive and and has command in it. Like, I don't care about you, but you'll do my bidding because I I, I think of you as a dog or something that's beneath me. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, what what choice do you have but to do what I say? Exactly. Uh, And that is ultimately his undoing, which is great. So we get that great introduction. uh, But then, of course, we get Data alive and well in the room. Uh, And this is where the core strength, I think, really comes in, Kate, because he's in that position laying down on that 
great piece of red furniture in the center of this room. And then I love how he just lifts himself up very Android-like yeah. uh, without any uh, grunting or groaning like we would do now. Fuck, of a bitch! Good on you, Brent Spiner, for being younger than we are now. Shit. Um, and then we get the introduction of like, this is all a setup. This has been everything that Fajo planned. Look at my wonderful museum of unique things. I, my only, I, I love that there are a few earth artifacts in there, but there's just a, it seems to be very earth heavy uh, in these artifacts. Mostly, I guess, to sell to the audience that this guy's yeah. a collector without it being like so-and-so from planet, blah, blah, blah. I get that. I get that would be a little bit annoying, but the Roger Maris baseball card is a little on the nose for me. No, that's my favorite. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. The, the, the bubblegum yes. smell, and then, like, Data leans in to smell it, and he snaps it closed. Yeah, he's like, no, no, like, no. No, no that smells for me. <laughs> no. I, I really wanted on the wall to have the, the sports almanac from... <laughs> Oh, back back to the yeah. future. Like, don't say anything about it. Just have it back there. That been yeah. awesome. I love this scene. I love how excited he is to play with his new toy. I wrote down Shakespeare come to life. Like we, we've talked about this character. Like it's just that the glee and yes. with which he approaches his new toy. And then the joy with which he shows the rest of the room and the dismissive way he says Dolly, right? Like everything about it is just... Like, Mm -hmm. just chef's kiss. He goes up on his toes. When he sees him, he goes up on his toes with glee. Yeah. Uh, And a good giggle is hard. Like, he's got a good giggle. Yeah. What struck me most rewatching this, and something that I would not have picked up on when I was a kid watching this, he doesn't even know what Data really is. He's surprised when Data speaks. Mm. So he doesn't want Data... This isn't about wanting data. Like we've seen other, you know, other characters in Star Trek be like, oh, wow, this android is wonderful and I need to. It's just a unique thing. And therefore he wants it. And that commute, like that one, like, oh, it talks. That one thing communicates so much about his intent, so much about how he views this and so much about who he is. It's just this small detail that, that, passes you know it like it's just a part of the entire like oh data woo woo but it's just so and he delivers it perfectly and yeah. he's talking to data at first like it's Polly's robot from rocky four <laughs> <laughs> like just you gotta scream at it right. it's right. amazing right. great effort effort he like <laughs> repeats words to it like it's uh, yeah. like data's can't understand him i also it's a really neat Thing that you're mentioning susan and i like that he's he's talking to varia at first he's not talking yep. to data he's talking to his audience and that's what's important for him it's not even that he has these things it's that other people are aware that he knows this thing as we can see from toff uh later on like it's more about being admired for being a dick and owning these things than it is to actually own them 100 percent, which is Makes it even grosser, uh, of yeah. course. Moving on, uh, Data's trapped. He can't leave. He says, I love the actual words that Data says here. He you know, he goes like, it's in- inequitable. And everyone says that, you know, that captivity is wrong. And he just, uh, uh, Fajr just is like, oh, captive? You don't need to say captive. That's not what this is. It's like all about semantics with him. Yeah, it's big, you know, high school debate energy. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. He's- Forge and Wesley go to Data's quarters. Uh, and I love this scene too, because it really does show, as you were saying, uh, about the emotional impact of this. 
uh, scene. We get the violin. We get his painting. I actually really like Data's painting. I kind of want it in, in my house. Uh, with uh, It reminded me of... Um, episode where they the, the traveler uh with wesley and like they're, they're outside the galaxy like i felt like that's what data was trying to evoke in that which i thought was really interesting jimmy's got a poster guy got a poster <laughs> guy <laughs> <laughs> i want that blown up not the dolly this hologram of tasha yar has gotten a lot of play and it works really well here because as you said susan they don't kill off a lot of characters in 80s television, but they did in this one. And I feel like they specifically wanted to call that back so that the characters could feel that loss. And she's credited in this episode. Oh, that's cool. Oh. She's getting those that's hot cool, residuals. Actually, right? Hell yeah. Well, at this point, too, she was in movies. Like, for, for a short time, she in was movie. the, the lead <laughs> in, a, right, in a couple of movies. So, like, why not bring her up? Uh, we get some callbacks to the poker chips, Hamlet, of course, having the captain work with him on uh, things. So it's a nice sentimental scene. It reminded me of when people quit uh, work and you go to their desk and you're like, oh, I'm going to get their stapler. <laughs> 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 I've been eyeing that for a while. Back in captivity, Varia wants Data to wear some different clothes. Uh, this Starfleet uniform is no good anymore. You got to wear this purple jumpsuit uh, jobber uh, that looks really good on on Brent Spiner. Right, with the the little uh, Nazi triangles on the sides of the pants, right? Oh, I missed that. I missed that. Too. Oh yeah, it does have like yeah. a like the jodpers. What is that? What that was called? Got little yeah. pieces that stick out on the sides. Yeah. Oh, yeah. little fucks. He says, "Nope, not gonna do it." And then this is this is the seed that he plants with Varia. Uh, we get a little bit more information about her, her face potentially was disfigured by Fajo. Like she gets that emotional moment where she touches her face about. Uh, I don't know if you know about the, Jimmy, if you read about this, the no. the makeup was supposed to be much more insectoid. She was supposed to have little antennae and things and like the jaw was supposed to be much more prominent. She did not like it and convinced them to change it. And the only thing that they kept was sort of the like vague, like it looks like this because it looks like a smashed face, essentially. And Westmore disavows this episode because not only was his original makeup not able to be used, but then the makeup that he, you know, for the character, uh, but the makeup that he had crafted for this woman, you know, they made her look like Farrah Fawcett instead. <laughs> Annette, Annette, he calls her Annette Funicello with a smashed in That's face. right, Annette Funicello <laughs> with a smashed Thank you, Susan. I knew it was something yep. good. Well, that, that's curious because I wonder how they would have played this detail that he had been disfigured by Fajo. Well, the, the antenna would be broken in half. <laughs> okay, that would have done it. I don't, here's the thing, like, because this this entire episode is a, is, is a metaphor for abuse, I don't think she would have actually had to have a visible right. disfigurement or, yeah. or impact or something for her to be able to sell that moment. Mm. Right. It, it, another reason why she didn't have to touch her face either. Yep. To show us. Like, we get it. You don't, yeah. you don't need yeah. to... Show us where you were hit. Well, it's it's for kids too. Like, yeah, you know, also it, true. It's sure. you know, yeah, you're right, Jimmy. But also, <laughs> as as a twelve year old, I would have needed that probably. <laughs> or maybe Westmore was just like, "You're going to do that to explain that makeup because I don't want people thinking that I did that makeup on purpose." <laughs> Thank you, Cannon. That's valid. <laughs> Yeah, because I was not sure whether she was human or not, right? Like, wh or whether she was just an alien that's human-like, like so many of the ones yeah. we encounter here <laughs> in Star yeah. Trek. It's so weird. Aliens all have two arms and two legs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I love Data's th- a line here at the end. Is like, oh, it seems like he has us both. You're you're just as much a captive as I am, and that that gets to her. Yeah, she feels that. We go back to LaForge being a little bit insubordinate in yelling at both the captain and the commander here what did you guys think of his tone in discussing this accident with his superior officers what did you yeah jimmy what do you think uh it was uh typical jordy laforge she gets a little worked up he's he wears his heart on his sleeve so i never i didn't take it at all like he was being disrespectful it was just a bit much on the acting bit maybe like you don't have to yell for us to know that you're intense but Mm. i didn't uh i still bought it like it's still genuine like that's Sort of how he's crafted this guy over the first three seasons is he gets a little snippy. Like we saw it when he falls in love with the hologram. Uh, like it, this isn't the first time we've seen Jordy raise his voice. Um, so it, it was it seemed par for the course. And he's emotional. Like finally somebody is like upset, like truly upset that data is gone and not just like, all right, well, we got shit to do. So you can cry about this later. Like he's crying right now. And that's good, man. Like, I would want my friends to start getting a little bitchy if I blew up in a shuttlecraft. <laughs> you got it, Jimmy. <laughs> we will bitch it up. But not you, Eric, because you got to save the, the instrument. Thank you, Jimmy. <laughs> I like the fact that Riker is like, you need to rest. And then Picard is like, oh, no, you're going to rest. <laughs> Like, it's an order. This is, that is happening. And they also understand, right? Like they get that this is an emotional moment. You feel some responsibility for it because you were the one who was uh, mentioning all the techno babble while it was hap- while the explosion happened. You know, like he was the one who was monitoring the the protective fields. So I do like that his superior officers were just like, yeah, okay, yeah, we we understand why you are this way. Uh, and Picard's moment there, where he's like dismissed, and then he says, "Wait a minute, Jordy." Yeah, I like that because it's like, okay, the official part of this conversation is over, but here's me being a little bit more of a, of a personal friend and just being like, I get it. I totally understand. I think that this also speaks to this is for kids in that when you're a kid, you don't understand that when you're in the military or, you know, which obviously Starfleet is modeled after the Navy, death is considered part of duty and you mourn on your own time and all of that. Like that's all structured into that sort of philosophy. When you're a kid, you're just like, why isn't anybody upset that Data's dead? So I think that having that come through uh, is like, oh, okay, they are upset. They're just they're just trying to, to right. do the right thing. Okay, I get it, I get it. Right. So I think that like... Was he being insubordinate? One hundred percent. But I think it's necessary for the storytelling to communicate very, very clearly that it's not that they're like, meh, bummer, he's dead. Oh well, we got places to go, you know. So seems a little cold. So you're saying the military isn't like working in a kitchen where you just cry at your station while you work. <laughs> <laughs> But and, and people die in restaurants all the time. So all the time, like last Tuesday. Like, yeah. It is business as usual because Picard has to be like, all right, we need to replace somebody here. Uh, Riker says Worf, and they're like, okay, yeah, he'll he'll come in. And I didn't get the implications of that until much later, but we'll we'll, we'll get to that conversation in a bit. But that is an important little bit there. And then Picard, uh, you know, reads Hamlet like, like you do, like you do, perfectly bookmarked too yes he doesn't have <laughs> to right... look for it it's just right there fajo is not happy 
that he refuses to wear the costume. Just super pissed about it. I have to point out before that, before Fajo comes in, Data is amelodically just going to the little creature. (laughs) And it made me so happy. I could barely even stand it. We've forgotten about the puppet, uh, the right? extinct oh, uh, alien species puppet. there. Oh, God, I love it. I think at the end, they should have opened a little thing to show a guy under it. Be like, <laughs> help me. <laughs> and that's the actual, that's the actual collectible. Uh, I'm gonna Maybe ask it could be Jeff a, Goldblum. I think you're the only one, Susan, who knows the name of the little creature that's underneath Jabba the Hutt. Uh, Salacious, oh, Salacious Crumb. Crumb. Yes. That's yeah. what that thing remind it's me of. Yes, it is. Yes, nice. Uh, was that was that Data making that noise, or was that the creature? I couldn't tell, Kate. I thought it was Data just like... <laughs> it is now, whether it was. It's canon. It's canon. It. Yeah, yeah, it's canon. It's what he would do with his, uh, with his cat. <laughs> they have another conversation here about how awful captivity is, and how he... Why can't... And, and Fajal's just like, why can't you just be a good slave for me, huh? It's so manipulative. And this is where Data just says, you know, it doesn't matter anything you say. Like, you can try to convince me, but like what you're doing is wrong and reprehensible. Like WTF. And he's like, you're right. I have no morality. I don't really care. And I'm going to throw this uh, solvent at your uniform so it dissolves. That was a really smart bit of writing, though. I'm not going to harm my uh, possession, my chattels. So I'm just going to burn the clothes off of you so you have to do what I want. I mean, that was just a nice way of showing just how devious this guy is. Like, He doesn't have to immediately resort to violence, which makes him a little more scary than if it was just like, you know, iron to the to the eyes, hot iron yeah. to the eyes. Mm. Like manipulating the situation in that way is is creepy. I love how they the misdirect of like they you think he's just ordering a drink just to be like you know yeah he even kind of tips it towards his face a little bit and then you get the throwing at him it's like this just this very dramatic moment I like their conversation too in terms of the the dichotomy of Data's presence like who he is that uh, I think he calls him a military pacifist uh, and about the fact that he's this like perfect killing machine that's been programmed you know, for peace to not kill, right? and how, and, and he's so, that's so anathema to him that he doesn't understand why this thing is not being used. And it's a thing to him, right. And how it's not being used, you know, to its greatest purpose is really interesting. It is. And that gets to the conclusion, right. right. About what, what is data going to choose to do here? You mentioned the writing. I love the writing of this scene too. This is where the word, the word, hucksterism and advancement of his own greed is is thrown in Fajo's face. I also love that he, he we've seen that a couple times in Star Trek episodes where people give a false story to get sympathy, even so much as crying, even he like getting himself tear. to cry. Oh, he on cries command. like a champ. The thing I what I what really struck me watching this scene again is this is the argument that men give their the their trophy right? I give you everything. I give you this wonderful life. You don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. Just sit in the chair and wear the pretty outfit. Is that so hard? And like the basic, well, like, no, I mean, that isn't hard. And that's what's so, so insidious about that argument is I will give you everything. I will make your life wonderful. Uh, and, and Fajo is saying, Hey, data, like 
you will be able to see so much and experience so much and indulge your curiosity. And all you have to do is sit in a chair and wear this piece of clothing. And how can you possibly be opposed to that? And it's it's it makes my skin crawl yeah. that entire scene watching it. And, but and, and I so appreciate that he's giving this this air quote logical argument to Data, but Data like hits him back with it because I don't want to, and that's it, and that's all it comes down to. It's like yeah, you can. That's what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I don't want to. And that's all it has to be yeah. for me to say I want out. And it's a really powerful thing for him to say. But because he's an android, he can say it just very matter-of-factly. And it's a really, really, really impactful scene, I found. Agreed. Yeah. And it is that lack of emotion that also uh, uh, Fajo tries to throw in his face later on, too, which I yeah. love. That is like the impassioned thing. Like, this is, you know... He constantly says, Data just says, I'm going to do everything in my power to try to get out of here because it's wrong. And that's yeah. it. And that's all. That's it. That's the entire conversation. And he, I love that this is where Data says, like, yeah, you're, you're great at debating. You're great at, at, at coming up with this shit. But you're dismissing the exact premise that yeah. they started with, which is I don't want to be here. It is not my choice to be here. Yep. And again, and is this, I think it was the earlier scene where, where Fajo is like, well, denied. Sorry. Your, your wishes are denied. You just got to deal with it. Uh, and it's so creepy. But he does eventually put on the clothes. Um, but before that, we get uh, Worf having his first shift at Ops, which, again, I did not uh, know was going to be an impactful emotional thing for me. But two, uh, we've talked about Counselor Troy's living up to her rank as counselor, uh, not very well in the last uh, few episodes. <laughs> but in this, she really does. She kind of gets a little bit uh, what's going on underneath Worf's exterior. And I love this walk and talk that they have being like, you know, you've, you've had to replace a fallen comrade before. Oh, it happens all the time on Klingon ships. He's like, yeah, I know, but come on, dude. <laughs> Are you all right? I want to interject because, of course, I'm always on the wrong end of these things. <laughs> <laughs> I had the opposite feeling. I felt like if this scene was written today, they wouldn't take in the tack that they did with this episode. Because I felt like she was totally dismissive of Worf's cultural background. Like as soon as she started talking, it was like, "Who are you to you're 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 talking to him in human terms?" Like, and she's coming from the point of view of a Betazoid, but it all came across to me as a very human response to something that happened. And he's a Klingon, it's like. He's allowed to have a different emotional response than what you may think is appropriate, right? Definitely, but also think of where the Klingon stuff comes from and the kind of colonial colonization attitude that it, that initially brought it. You know, that Klingon is supposed to be a metaphor for kind of more martial, less emotionally available humans, but it's also locked up in the anger of black people once it went that direction with the Klingon skin and all of this stuff happening at once like I don't think they thought enough about cultural identities at this point you're right Jimmy to them and no matter what the hopefully inadvertent kind of uh, shit that this ended up 
playing with emotionally for those of us watching it, they meant to say, well, of course, this militarized society didn't let you deal with emotions the way you should have. Here's how we do it. So like, you're, you're right that it's not great in the way that we hopefully think about uh, um, independent cultures now and give them room to explore and, and have their own mores. But then the race that they created that was Klingon was meant to hopefully have a metaphor in repressed emotions that we want to deal with. So from how they were approaching it, I think they did it right. But you're right. Today, you got to take <laughs> and then you should take into account that once you create it, it's real. But my thought is that he's born Klingon, but he's yeah. been raised as a human his entire life and he's in Starfleet. That doesn't make him any less Klingon than being black and raised by white people makes you not black. <laughs> sure, but there is a nature versus nurture thought here where like Council Joy is not like you must go to counseling sessions six days a week so that we deal with this. Like she's just checking in with him and just being like, hey. I know this could be a big deal for you. You can choose to engage with me more or not, but it's just a heads up. And I thought that was, I mean, he tries to dismiss it being like, oh, Klingons, this happens all the time. And she's like, but you're not on a Klingon ship, dude. Like this is something that would affect everybody here. And Data was your friend, just like Tasha was your friend. Right. You know, so I think, I don't think it's ignoring his culture. It's just being, it's just a check-in amongst colleagues and friends. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that, yeah, he was he was raised by humans, but I think more relevant is that he is serving with humans. He is replacing well, an android and a human. Uh, but you know, and it's it's as much how is he going to how does he feel about it and how it, has he thought about how the humans around him are going to react? to it? Mm. Because even if he is blasé with it because hey, it happens on Klingon ships all the time, it doesn't happen on human ships all the time. How, is he at all worried, or has he thought about how his crewmates are going to look at him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Place twice on this ship. <laughs> and like, it's oh, important sorry. to note he's the only one who had a vocal response, so True. he's the only one who actually showed yeah. emotion yep. to that yep. situation. So I like the fact that I think we get just a little peek into the future in this scene because yes. as it ends, yeah. he, mm -hmm. he says very quietly, "I appreciate your concern." And she turns away and she smiles the smile. And I was like, oh, that might be the yeah. it, right? Like that might be, you know, we've had like little moments where we see like that, that this friendship is, the moment. yeah. But yeah, I feel like it sets us up for the future there. I thought the same thing, Kate. I thought that little, I like it. that little smile to the camera was like, hmm, he's strong, but he also has emotions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> also his butt looks really cute. <laughs> After that, we get another scene in which LaForge wears his uniform to bed uh, and sleeps above the covers. Right? Well, okay. I need to pause here. For <laughs> I feel like we're in the future. We are out amongst the stars. Why are beds not comfier? Right? That pillow is ridiculous. <laughs> the sheets, the pillows. Like, I want to be like floating yes. in zero G, just <sighs> the comfiest, coziest. I feel like bed tech should have advanced mm -hmm. more. Agreed. Agreed. And then why was he still wearing, did he fall asleep accidentally? But he took off his visor. I don't know. It was very They only had budget for one pajama costume and they gave that to captain picard picard yeah uh in uh captain's holiday so like sorry yeah yeah, yeah they did that's valid but he's having a dream where he 
is hearing Data's voice giving all of the reports of the shuttlecraft leaving the ship. And he's like, well, I did forget something. Puts on his visor. I do like that he can't see, but he can feel where the vi- he has to turn the visor around. He almost put like you're gonna put your glasses on the wrong way. Like he 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 had a moment of that. I can't uh, uh, look at his visor anymore without thinking about Eric's comment about that. It was great that they put blinky lights on a blind man's. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Paler Toff shows up. He's got that weird nose thing that wraps around from <laughs> the slinky that went too far. But yeah, my question is, is that gold headpiece jewelry or an important part of keeping him alive? Ooh. Because it almost Yeah, we do see those. Right? It almost seems like something that is necessary for him to exist in that environment. I love it. Maybe. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. I like it. He has to be breathing brass at all times. <laughs> <laughs> the smell is what keeps him alive. I do in the scene. He also like itches his nose, like his yeah, real no, nose his at nose. one point. He's, yeah, he picks his nose. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, that's Yentl's dad. <laughs> He's earned it. Show some respect. But Data does his you no know, passive aggressive. Our, our, um, What's the Gandhi? Passive resistance. Thank you. Passive resistance, where he's like, I'm not going to. Oh, Gandhi was passive aggressive as fuck. (laughs) It is passive aggressive as fuck. (laughs) No, no, no. The chicken is fine. (laughs) And the Paler Toff, I think, has the best line of this entire episode where he says, Well, he falls well. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which it was a really good fall. Like, he actually did land very much like a mannequin would. Um, But I think that was actually Brad Spiner who did that. I believe you're right. It's not like the one earlier where the guy got thrown across the room and it turned into a wonderful stunt double. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, you know, we've always loved his falls. Fajo basically ends that scene just by saying like, you're going to regret this. Uh, and uh, I love that. I love that the power kind of shifted a little bit where Data was able to take away the one thing that Fajo needed, which was the respect of his peer, right? He wanted to show it off. And Data took that away from him. The actual plot of what's going on with the Hytridium uh, happens on Beta Agni 2. Crusher, Worf, and Riker beam down and start investigating. And they realize that, hey, this might have been done on purpose. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. We come back to Data. He's other, also doing some great business by smiling at the Mona Lisa. <laughs> Another Earth ad- artifact here. But I do like that he was trying to... Mimic the smile with his face. Sit in the chair. Oh, by the way, I have a Varian T disruptor. If you're not going to sit in the chair, I'm going to kill Varia in in your name. And there is a lot of upsetting detail in this. They have yes. been together for 14 years, and she was like, there. There's a line he says she was barely an adult when I found yes, her. Yes, that freaked me the fuck out. Upsetting, upsetting, and makes sense with the the relationship that they have, and that kind of possessive you know, that you would fall into that as a younger person. It's just, yeah, that, that little detail stuck with me. Her actual just horror at her, him pointing the, the gun at her was like, what? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. And then you get Data saying, Fajo, and he's there in the chair, acceding to his wishes. And that little bit of heroism, I think, is what eventually convinces Varia to, uh, to help out. And I mean, has there ever been a more Chekhov's gun, Chekhov's gun situation? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) 
We get an observation lounge scene, guys. Uh, this is super great. We talk about the scene, what's happening, what would they possibly be doing? Uh, who would sabotage with Hytridium? It doesn't make any sense. And then they get the computer. Uh, we get Majel Barrett telling us that, oh, this guy's a collector <laughs> for unique things, and everything clicks. The Forge's um, question about data being in that shuttle or not. Oh, wait, let's go. And then they, they spend a little bit of time trying to track him Warp down. Eight. Warp eight. That's pretty. That's pretty high up there in the warps. I mean, if I found out later they didn't even go to warp nine, like that would that would frustrate me. I'm like, I know how fast this ship goes, and it's exponential, right? So warp nine is way right. faster than warp eight. It's nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> eight. Get out of here. If we were to save you, Eric, I would go to warp nine. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. No, no, no. Warp Bates fine. <laughs> <laughs> so then Varia says, hey, uh, Data is trying to break into where the Varon T disruptor is held in a safe in that room. Uh, and then Varia is like, hey, if I help you, will you take me with you? She does the combination. We got to get out of here. He's sleeping. Set it up for the last act. The Enterprise uh, is searching for the ship, the Jovis. They got a message that it uh, was just at the outpost at Laia 5, or 4. And they were like, hey, it's been there for eight hours. They weren't even trying to like hide from us. They were just hanging out with uh, with Toph. And they go there now. I love, it's a. It's not an on-screen line, but uh, Wesley Crusher is like, I've already got the course laid in. We're already going there. Everybody wants to get data back. He did some quick math. Yeah, he's, a really, he's, he's up on it, right, Kate? He knows yeah. what to do. Then we get the climactic scene in the cargo bay here. There's a lot of action. Data and Varia try to get their, their escape pod out. It creates an alarm. Two of Fajo's associates come in and try to fight them. The disruptor gets knocked down. But then finally, Fajo is there. And he's got his own that he sleeps with under his bed. You're right in that it was mentioned specifically for that reason. I love the scene too where Varya and Fajo face off with each other. And it's not clear to me whether Fajo has killed before because he asked that question of Data earlier. And I don't he think he has. has not. No, definitely not. Nope. And so that's why he pauses here. He doesn't want to kill her. And then he does. He, t- he has that moment of like, no, I'm not going to do it. And she's like, <sighs> and then she does. Also, there's that great shot of her trying to reach for the gun. Yeah. And not being able to dive far enough uh, to get to it. Um, and then we see this disruptor do its nastiness. I feel like this. I, we had seen this in previous Star Trek movies before. How phasers set to kill can rip you out from, from the inside like this. But we it's had called total protonic reversal. <laughs> we got to cross the streams. What if these Varon T disruptors were fired at each other? Matter of factly, he says. Yeah. Aferia is killed, uh, and the that's of course it was loud. This this whole scene plays out in silence, so Data is not able to come to her rescue. Um, assuming he probably would have been able to overpower Fajo uh, if he was aware that he was there. Um, and then Fajo, like, kind of lets Data, like, he walks away, which is a weird. Well, he throws a gun down. Choice as soon as he shoots Varia, right? He like. Yes. Hot potato. Gets it out of his hand. Yeah. And then he says, probably the most evilest thing. You killed her. You did this. The blood is on your hands. And it's so manipulative and wrong and what abusers do. 
It's so upsetting. It's so upsetting, and it's so on the nose. And uh, the whole scene with Varya, oh, where you know he he points the gun at her, and she looks, and she has that second of, <gasps> and then she's like, "Oh wait, no, you're a coward. You're not gonna do it." And he's like, and he realizes, "No, I'm not gonna do it. I'm a coward." And then he says, "Wait a minute." And sort of psychs himself up to have this unique experience mm. because he's never done it before and and does this terrible, terrible thing and then has that moment of, well, he doesn't want anybody associating the terrible, terrible thing. Wasn't his fault. Nope, you made me do this. Uh, skin crawling uh, everywhere. Yeah. And this is where the moral that we were talking about, about the pacifist and uh, military android kind of comes forward, right? Because Data's there. He's does uh Brett Spiner does a lot of standing with authority in this uh in this episode and he does it here. And that's the thing that gets Fajo's attention after his like back is turned. Maybe he's having a little bit of self-retrospectiveness. Like he shouldn't have killed his I don't know, servant. Number one henchwoman. He goes on to say, I'll just kill someone else. He also says there's always another variant. Yeah, right? Like mm-hmm. he he gets very I think it's, uh, I think Susan is right on, right? It's it's sort of like that new experience and like, well, now that I've done that. Yeah, I, I think he's not sure how he's going to react and he's relieved that he doesn't have any emotional attachment to right. it. Right. That's even grosser. Yeah. He can justify anything to himself. Right. The ultra rich as well, who just believe that they are beyond laws and beyond, you know, because no one will ever look at them and say, you dirty bastard, like, what have you done? And if they do, then they're a nuisance that they get rid of, right? But it's that, yeah. it's that I will face no consequences because I've never faced them before, right? Yeah. It's, it's why Elon is so surprised that he's being taken to court now because he's like, I don't want to do Twitter anymore. And people are like, repercussions. And he's like, I don't know what those are. I don't recognize them. <laughs> I am above the law. Yeah. Fajal continues to taunt Data saying, you're not going to do it. You know, you're not as as brave as I was in killing. Like, you know, like there's this whole thing. And then Data has this. He's really thinking about it. Like his positronic brain is going in overdrive here because his programming does not contain. You know, he's not ordered to kill. He's not done any. There's nothing that would tell him to do it. But he's like, I can't allow this to continue. Which I think is such. Like if there's morality in this episode, that's that's the moral here. Because for all he knows, we we have the benefit of knowing that the enterprise is on its way. He doesn't like right. in his mind. This is the rest of his life potentially. Correct. And all right. So here's the question: He gets beamed right at this moment. Do you think he pulled the trigger? I do. I do too. Yeah. Oh yeah, he certainly did. I think assassination is is a political response that people who are helpless engage in like we see that throughout history i i think he did but then i think it's also interesting that in the subsequent scene with uh o'brien yeah we got o'brien back and Riker, uh, that he lies if he if he did in fact pull the trigger he lied about it it's not a lie doesn't he just say something like perhaps there was a problem with the yeah said it was in a state of discharge Riker says to him and he's like well maybe something happened right but maybe something did happen it's not a lie it's a yeah it's, it's a dodge. obfuscation certainly data can't lie yeah he can not tell the truth but he can't lie 
right? Like right. he can again, he can sort of do the end run around it. We split hairs here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, because that's how computer language works, right? Like he's programmed. He doesn't he can't do things the way humans do. He has to follow a set of commands. But he can creatively follow those commands. He's like the ultimate rules lawyer, basically. <laughs> I don't think he did pull the trigger. No. Um, for that exact reason. Like, because I think it would require him to arrive at a set of rules lawyering where he would be allowed to do that. But I, what I do love about the construction of the scene is they know you as the audience want to believe he did. So they will leave... They will leave enough ambiguity there for you to think he actively made a choice to pull, like he made a choice to pull the trigger and then made a choice to lie about it for the yeah. captain. So I love that. I love it. I do too. I I, I go back and forth because now you're swaying me to think maybe he didn't because the thing I can't grab around is like, why, why would he try to not lie or why would he try to obfuscate, right? Like there's nothing that he, he's not going to get court-martialed for, killing his captor right who has done all of these demonstrable things against him i mean he's he's logical enough to want to preserve his reputation and he didn't kill the guy i i think part of the thing is he is whether he has emotions or not what he definitely has is perception yeah so he knows how how people perceive each other in the wake of actions like this etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. like you can give him all of the human ability to perceive consequences so i i think any any reason a human might lie beyond personal benefit, you can ascribe to data. Hmm. Well, Riker and O'Brien are certainly, hmm, they don't really know for certain either. Uh, so they get to be the audience surrogates there. Riker is not very happy to see data again. Uh, like there's none of that like <laughs> reunion, hey, we thought you were dead moments here. But we do get this great scene with Fajo in the brig and data coming to see him. And man, this performance of Saul Rubinix here is so good because you get to see his like, oh, you, you think the tables are reversed. Like, oh, you're, I'm part of your collection now. And Data doesn't even give him that. Yeah, it's because what, he wants to fight. Yeah. He, he, he wants to feel righteous and he can only do that if Data plays into it. And it's like, yeah, now this is what you get for all your bad behavior. Like, that's the only way he can get to be like, I wasn't bad. I was just perfectly justified. I was doing what anybody would do. He can't have that argument. Because mm -hmm. Data's like, I'm just an android. Yes. Which is like, so good. oh, it's such a baller so line. Good. It's so good. And the delivery is, mwah, it's so fabulous because he... I don't even know how, okay, I don't know if he actually does this with the delivery or if it's just feeding into the audience desire of it, but he delivers that line to be synonymous with F you, I hope you die choking. It's just so perfect. Yeah. Well, I, I take it to be, you know, the moment of, this narcissist being if i'm not the main character at least i'm the nemesis right and, and the best way to take him away from that is like no i'm not the main character either <laughs> like keep looking yeah. <laughs> you know it, it's really terrific they do an incredible slow zoom onto his yes. face too as he's speaking and his and he's so uh sort of passive you know like just has that very like uh, i'm which goes back to the like 
hey guys, did your ship blow up? Wow. Yeah. Now we get data yeah. with his like, oh, I don't know, man. I'm only an android. No, sir. No, yeah. sir. Mm-hmm. I do not. I don't feel pleasure. I am only an android. That slow zoom I, I noted too, okay, because it gets like he's perfectly in focus yeah. right at that line of moment. And you get to see his every like pore of that awful makeup on, on Brent Spider's uh-huh. face. But it, it, it really brings it home because it's just like, yeah, fuck you. And I'm just going to walk out of here. And by the way, your collection is being returned. <laughs> Everything that you staked your, your, your reputation on. Your identity. Your identity on is gone. Well, that's the whole episode. It's I love. We've mentioned this a couple times in season three. The writers and the and the producers of the show really realize that you don't need to have like a "we're glad to see you back" data kind of hokey moment. It ends on what was the kind of the moral center of this thing, and it lets it's it's a thinking end too. So I'll go around, Jimmy. What did you think of this episode as a whole? Uh, I loved it as a whole. Um, we've talked about this many times on this and other podcasts that there's a homogeny of villainy. And while scowling white men in black leather is certainly scary, it is not the only way to be scary or villainous. And Ruminic gives a masterclass in how you can be a terrifying villain and be light on your feet and giggly and bubbly and five foot six, five foot six and have no armor or anything that is physically scary. And you can still be absolutely terrifying. And that is brilliant. And for that alone, I give this nine future Worf and Troy will smash. (laughs) <laughs> Kate, what did you think? This is one of my favorite episodes. I was so excited for us to get here. It has stuck with me through the years, and it it, it only got better this time watching it. I'm gonna give this nine and a half to a sock puppet. Um, I just think the performances are stellar throughout, and just it's well fucking written. It's just, it's well-paced, it's well-written. As as Jimmy says, it takes, it's a different kind of enemy that we're facing. I just, everything about it clicks for me. I think it's a great fucking episode. Reed, Eric, what are your, what are your thoughts? I'm going to give it 9.5, everybody understood the assignments, <laughs> and say that it is a extremely complete episode. I had very little memory of it for some fucking reason, because it is now again one of my favorites. I think just all the way through, the metaphor is super clear and not overpowering. Like, it's it strikes a a balance that I want to see, especially in my genre, entertainment. I could not be more happy with the performances. I, I think it's just a stellar thing. It's been set. Awesome. Susan, what are your thoughts? Well, the, the whole reason you originally reached out to me to, to guest on this podcast is because I wrote a list of the top 10 next generation episodes for space.com and this was on it. So that's pretty clear what I think about it. I give it nine and a half pinky rings. No. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Where do you put the half pinky rings? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that goes in your nostrils. (laughs) Well, sure. Uh, Obviously. Yeah, it's, it's, it is chilling. There are, are, are scenes uh, with Fajo that are genuinely chilling and Brent Spiner plays off it so strongly and so beautifully. You know, one of the greatest things about sci-fi is that it allows you to discuss and think about real world topics in a safe way and, you know, at, at a slight distance so that you can have these kinds of uh, 
conversations and observations and, and really think about it. And uh, there's just a strength to Brent Spiner in this that I so appreciate. So yeah, brilliant episode. One of my all-time faves. Absolutely. I'll agree with everything said. I'll give it nine Varantee disruptors made by Chekhov. <laughs> it, it, it hits all the by right notes. It's, it's, it's not really a bottle episode. There are a lot of different scenes, but there's very little action in it. It's all in the performances of of really Brent Spiner and Saul Rubinick. Uh, so great. I didn't know that he had come in and, and had to do this at a moment's notice. So that's, he makes it even more impressive. And also, uh, as Kate mentioned, shout out to Sherry Goodhart for writing this episode. She was 30 years old when this was broadcast. And so you could tell that she used a lot of her lived experience in order to bring this to life. Perfectly crafted, well done all around. My only real criticism is just too many earth artifacts. <laughs> the Mona, Mona Lisa smile. It's funny. But a little bit on the nose. Good song. Uh, all right. Well, thank you again so much, Susan, for joining and, and talking through this. Where where can people find out stuff? I know you have your own podcast. What are some other things people can can follow for you? You can follow me on Twitter at Susan Arndt, where I talk about shows incessantly. Or you can subscribe to my newsletter at Substack. It's called Channel Surfing, and I talk about all sorts of TV there. Uh, or you can go read the Star Trek stuff I've written on Space.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to have you back on in season four, season five, when this series really, really takes off uh, for amazing things. Uh, it was great having you and great to be able to talk about some storytelling with you again. Yeah, thanks so much. This was so much fun. I, I will happily discuss uh, the ins and outs of an overthink about sci-fi plots <laughs> all day long. So thanks. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you, Susan. That's what this is all about. Uh, and my, I drank this entire, well, not really. I have to drink the rest of this smoothie so I can get my pants wet. But that's it. We're done. <laughs> Yay! We appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge crew on all of the social medias. Kate Yeager is Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by me, Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now as Dr. Beverly Crusher is ready 